Good to see you all again. Uh, it's a real privilege and joy to, to be here once again. It's been a year since uh, we were together. And uh, it always brings tears of joy and of gratitude to be among you. Even as we sing the old songs and remember the closeness and the nearness of the Lord to all of us who believe in Him. Um, as you know, I hardly ever you know, prepare something spe- specific. I rather, unless the Lord leads differently, just to share the things we've been considering in Italy and just share them with you as we share them over there. And um, since we'll be together this evening too, I thought of just uh, considering one theme especially, the theme of the remnant. This morning we'll consider the, the origin and the purpose of the remnant, and then this evening the temptations, uh, the uh, sorrows, and the remedies for these temptations and sorrows of the remnant. I think this is a worthwhile thing to consider, very timely in fact, I think, in the light of all that's happening in the world. So, would you open up with me in the book of Romans in chapter 11? That's where we will be starting this morning. Sunday school, I was speaking of this book that we translated in Italian, Paul David Tripp, Suffering. And I was speaking of it as a book very worthwhile to read for anyone interested in this uh, important aspect of life, suffering. Sometimes we really hardly know how to face suffering in our life, especially when it, when it hits us very hard. And uh, this, uh, the qualities of this book can hardly be exaggerated. It's, it's biblically sound, is very pastoral, and also very sincere, very human. And some of these qualities can hardly ever be found together in the same book. Some books are very doctrinally sound, but very dry. Some are, you know, pastoral, but they're categorical and harsh, uh, but this is both pastoral and human, uh, sensitive, deep, understanding, honest. Um, the model for that type of book is found in the pastoral epistles. They are drawn from the sound, <laughs> uh, but they are also pastoral, and they're also human, sensitive, honest, humble. Look at that first question that Paul asks in Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, as God cast away His people. Now, you know, we're 2,000 years from this question as it was posed back then. And we can hardly understand really all that it meant. Uh, This was a very felt question among Christians. Has God 
cast away his people? Has God forsaken his people? Um, it was a very perplexing question. For many, it was a very agonizing question. And immediately, I want to raise the question <laughs> Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to where you have asked the Lord, Have you forsaken me, O God? Have you forgotten of me? Or have you abandoned your work in the midst of this world? Have you abandoned your church? Have you cast away your people? So we should not face this matter just as a theological quest. <laughs> so often the Bible is just used that way, very theoretically, to play with doctrine and to establish what's correct, to distinguish it from what is not correct. And in all the exegesis and all the Greek and all the Hebrew and all the quotations and but we should never forget that these the uh, the Bible is a spiritual book um, and it wants to reach the heart of of of, of men and heart, the heart of men and women not just their intellect and so I say then as God cast away his people as I was saying this is a timely theme uh, because it may seem sometimes to us that God is letting go that God is, is casting away that God has gotten tired of us and just uh, turned his back to us or so let us contemplate this question with this do heaviness uh, proper heaviness why does Paul raise the question anyway now as you know the Bible originally was not divided in chapters <laughs> and one of the problems with chapters is that you know sometimes somehow systematically or automatically lead us to dissect the scripture as if we forget what's gone before and Paul is starting completely something new that's not the case Paul had just been talking about two very serious things. If you look at the previous chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 20, speaking of the Gentiles, the peoples of the world, Paul says, I was, but Isaiah is very bold to say about the peoples of the world, I was found by those who did not seek me or seek after me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. So what Paul is saying what Paul is saying here, speaking of the of the Gentiles that have massively embraced, that were massively embracing Christianity, Paul says, This is not of men, this is of God. They did not find God because they were seeking after him. <laughs> but they found him because he sought after them. So salvation is of the Lord. But then when it says to Israel, look at what it says. All day long, but, but to Israel, it's different. Because Isaiah says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Notice, why didn't Israel embrace God's message all through the Old Testament as a people uh, God says my arms were ever open to them 
I called them to the prophets all day long. But they were disobedient, contrary, opposite, rebellious. That's why. So, salvation is all of the Lord. Damnation is all of man. That's the proper view of Scripture. I was found by those who sought not after me. But as for Israel's perdition, I said, come and come and come and come. And they would not. How many times have I desired, but you would not. So that's the antithesis, seeming antithesis of Scripture, which is really not at all an antithesis in the grace of God. But it is to this uh, last point that Paul raises the question in chapter 1, verse 11. He's speaking of Israel. The nation of Israel who has rejected and rejected and rejected the message of God. So then the question, has God cast away His people? Now, Paul is quoting in chapter 10, verse 21... He's quoting from the Old Testament to, to, to establish the, the fact that even at this time, Israel is not believing. Uh, because there was only a minority of the Israelites, of the Jews, that had turned to Christ and embraced Him as Messiah. So, Paul is addressing this question. Why is it that so few of the Jews have believed in the Lord, have embraced Jesus as the Messiah of God? Why? The perplexing question is, has God cast away His people? Weren't the promises of salvation to be fulfilled in Israel? Wasn't Israel to be saved in the latter days? Why? Is it not happening? Has God completely cast away His people? So this is the context. And again I say this was an agonizing, troubling question. It was not just a a point of theoretical doctrine. (laughs) It was an agonizing question for many Jews because these many Jews were actually a small minority and they were persecuted. And they couldn't understand why so few had embraced Christ. What's the answer of Paul? Certainly not. God has not cast away Israel, his people. For I also am an Israelite. Now this is important because Paul here is speaking of ethnical Israel. You know, not spiritual Israel because he he remarks that. He has made a distinction between uh, the Gentiles and Israel in the preceding two verses. And here, when he says, God, as God cast away his people, uh, by all um, you know, appearance, he is speaking of ethnical or ethnic Israel. Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite for the, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is saying, well, first of all, I take this personally. <laughs> I must take this personally. If God had cast away His people, I wouldn't be a Christian. Because I happen to be an Israelite. So He must not have cast away Israelites. 
since I am saved, I am a Christian. So it would answer immediately negatively to that question, uh, just thinking of his own experience. And then he continues with the second reason. So God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking after my life. (laughs) But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise grace would not be grace, or is no longer grace. So this is Paul's second strong point. No, God is not cast away his people, Because if he had done that, there wouldn't be a remnant. I wouldn't be converted, because I'm an Israelite. And then there wouldn't be a remnant of Israelites who have embraced Christ. And because there is a remnant, that means that God has not cast away his people. Has not forsaken his people. So these are the two major points that Paul makes. But... As he interprets the history of Elijah, he says something very important in verse 5. Well, he says several things, but we will consider just a few. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant, according to the election of grace. Now, this is a very important statement. First of all, Paul goes back to the history of Elijah and says... Even Elijah thought that God had cast away his people in that time of great discouragement where he looked around and he saw nobody else that was holding on to the faith of Abraham. And so he said, God, what's going on? They destroyed everything. Your work is wasted. But what did the divine voice say? No. Just the fact that you can see them doesn't mean that they're not there. I have made sure... <laughs> To preserve 7,000 that have not bowed down their knee to the idol. So, then, even at this present time, there is a remnant. See his line of argument? As it was then that so few were holding on to the faith, had embraced the faith and were holding on to the faith, so it is today fewer, a minority, a residue, a remnant of humanity is holding on to the faith and not bowing to the idol. As it was then, so it is now. And this movement of thought between what was then and what is true now, Old and New Testament, highlights the fact that when we speak of the doctrine of the remnant, we're not we're speaking of a continuity. There are discontinuities and continuities in the Bible. There are things that 
you can find only in the Old Testament and are valid in the Old Testament that are discontinued in the New Testament. Especially all those things that were fulfilled in Christ. (laughs) Which was actually a shock, you know, to the Jews. When Christians begin to say, the temple has no more meaning. Sacrifices have no more meaning. The priests have no more meaning. We need to let all this go. You know, to them, that was impossible. You mean, this is obliterated? (laughs) This has no more meaning? I mean, all the the circumcision and the dietary laws and and this and that. You're assassinating the Old Testament. You Christians. So strong was the message of the Bible, which explains why so many Jews didn't just receive it at all. It was too radical. Is it possible that Jesus is so big that He fulfills everything? That all the meaning of the Old Testament was actually wrapped, is actually wrapped up in Him and fulfilled in Him? See, they couldn't, most couldn't take that. But that indeed was the truth. And so, there were discontinuities, but there were also continuities. Let us not forget that those important words of Paul in Acts chapter 26 when Paul says I have preached nothing but what has already been taught by the old, by the, the law and the prophets Paul makes that statement uh, meaning that the roots of all the important doctrines of the New Testament can be found in the Old Testament and so There are discontinuities, but there are also continuities. And the difference between the two is basically this. Discontinuities are not essential. Because if they were essential, they'd be in both testaments. Continuities are essential. Or at least fundamental. And when Paul says, as it was then a remnant, so it is now a remnant. He's talking about something essential. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on both testaments. (laughs) On both testaments. So, the concept or the reality of the remnant is very important because it follows all the history of redemption. It is the basic work that God has been doing all through human history. He has always preserved a remnant all through history. That's his view. That's his decision. That's his program. That's his design. And if we want to understand the way he moves and works, then, therefore, we must understand the doctrine of the remnant. Why does God do this? How did this come about? What is implied in this in this revelation? Uh, and there are a lot of things that can encourage me and you as we think of what it means to be part of the remnant, even as we are uh, gathered here this morning. Um, so, the question then must be raised. Um, How has it happened that all through history only a remnant has believed?
only a minority, a small portion of humanity has believed. Even this morning, you may feel that you're really part of a remnant. Things are really going out of control, even in this country, as they are in Europe. Uh, few seem to have remained that have any sense of what's true and what's false. So, how should we respond to the present situation, which can really be very discomforting, uh, very depressing at times? So, here's the question. How has it happened that all through history, only a small portion, a remnant, a minority of humanity has believed? Um, and we must give the answer to this question from the book of Romans. And in a certain sense, we must keep in mind all the book of Romans as we answer this question. Why is it that only a small portion of humanity has always believed? Um, and the first answer is negative. And we must go back to Romans chapter 1. Um, we, we will... We will not go slow. We must, I don't want to say hurry. It's never a good word in preaching. But we must um, see you know, several things rather rapidly. <laughs> so, uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, you are mindful of what Paul says in uh, verse 20, 21. Uh, as mankind as a whole, Paul says knows about the God of creation because he's always given ample proofs that these things that, uh, that exist were made by him with, with infinite in intelligence with infinite power and wisdom uh, but verse 21 they are inexcusable the end of verse 20 because although they knew God they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, the first reason why so many, uh, so, so few have ever believed is that the majority of humanity has rejected the God of creation. Has rejected the God of creation. And then, if you go to chapter 2 and look at... Uh, verses 17 on to 24, he's speaking of the Jews. The Jews also have rejected uh, the message of God. So much so that in verse 24 he says that the name of God, sorry, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So you have the nations of the world who reject God, the nation of Israel that rejects God, as all the Old Testament demonstrates, so there you have an answer. The majority of humanity has always rejected God. And if we want to know why, Paul in chapter 3 and verse 9 explains it. Why then? Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. For we had previously charged both Jews and, Gen and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all gone out of the way. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So Paul insists on the universality of sin. The universality of rebellion. Mankind is totally opposite and contrary to God. There is no righteous. No, not one. And that explains why there is a remnant. (laughs) Not altogether. But it's a basic negative answer. Because humanity as a whole is corrupted. And rebellious. And antagonistic. And contrary. That's why. Paul goes deeper. And in Romans 5 verse 12. Said that says that just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul here enters into the doctrine of the sin of Adam and the, the, <laughs> the universal consequences that that has brought about. All are born sinners. All uh, have gone astray. There is no one who seeks after God. And to understand why there is such a thing as the universality of sin, you must go back to the root, to the Adamic root. Otherwise you will not understand it. Not only, but if you move up to chapter 8, Paul keeps on beating on this issue, and I'm referring to chapter 8 verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The human mind, the human spirit, is, Paul says, enmity. Its enmity itself is completely by nature contrary to God, against God, is not subject to the law of God, the human mind, the human spirit, the human soul always wants to do things that are contrary to the moral values of God. Nor can it be subjected to the law of God. It doesn't have the capacity, it is so evil. It doesn't have the ability to subject itself to the moral values of the law of God. So, The reason why all through history only a few have believed in the message of the gospel can be understood only if we take the whole question of sin and depravity seriously. If we are superficial about sin, then we we say, why isn't that everybody's not loving sweet Jesus? You know, man is so good. You know, but this is not so. It is not so. Mankind is by nature against God. And nothing but the grace of God can change that. That's why only a few have believed. But then there's also a positive answer. Also a positive answer. Because then the other question can be raised. Well, if, if all are contrary to God and have no ability to change that antagonism against God why is it that any have believed 
And Paul gives ample answer to that question throughout the book because in verse, in chapter 3, that's where he turns, the, he turns the tables. He says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Be witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and all who believe. For there is no, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, or being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So, why is it that any are saved? Paul says, because God has acted in Christ. He's intervened in Christ. And through His death, through His redemptive death, through His substitutionary atonement, He has provided a way of reconciliation with God. That we, who are hopeless sinners can find forgiveness through the agony of His death and of His sacrifice for us. God has intervened and made a way of salvation. And not only that, if you go to chapter 10, in uh, referring especially to verses 13 and uh, through 15, not only... (laughs) Salvation has been uh, realized by God, wrought by God on our behalf. But this message of salvation is being preached. It's being preached. People are coming to know. He says in verse 13, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall be called on Him, in, 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 on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him? Of whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written. How blessed. How beautiful. Are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Who bring glad tidings of good things. So Paul says. Do you realize that. Even all the work. That God has done in Christ. In and of itself. Wouldn't save unless. The message of of what He has done is communicated and people embrace it by faith. So Paul is speaking here of the essential need of evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel. And Paul says, therefore, blessed are the feet of all those who preach the gospel. Our feet were especially given for that purpose. We can go about anywhere in this world, but whenever we use our feet to witness of Christ, they are most blessed feet. And then, not only that, but in chapter 11, he goes back on this issue and says something else. Not only, he says, in other words, do you realize that even all that Christ has done wouldn't be enough if the gospel wouldn't be preached, and then do you realize that even if the gospel is preached, that in and of itself would not suffice unless God intervenes personally with His Spirit to call inwardly sinners to Himself? 
So there must be the work of the Spirit, the inner work of the Spirit. And Paul emphasizes this many times, even in the verses that we have just read from Romans 11, 1 through 5 or 6. First of all, in verse 2, he speaks of a people whom God has foreknew, has foreknown. And that word foreknown doesn't just mean the people that God uh, uh, knew about beforehand. <laughs> because the word knowledge here, as it does in Hebrew, means intimate relationship. Means love. So, Paul is saying God has not cast away the people that He has loved. That's what it means. That He has pre-loved or loved before time. And then he goes back to this thought of sovereignty in verse 4. But what does the divine response say to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men. I have reserved. See, the stress is in God's initiative. It is God who took the initiative in the midst of a rebellious humanity to preserve to himself 7,000. If he had not preserved them, they would have fallen as well. There wouldn't be a remnant if God had not preserved a remnant. And that leads Paul to speak of what? Of sovereign election. In verse 5, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the calling to, to the election of grace. You see that? That's how Paul interprets the statement of the Old Testament where he speaks of I have preserved for myself. Paul says, well, what is that? <laughs> Isn't that the election of grace? The calling of grace? Uh, and again, so there is there is something here to say uh, about this very fact. And so we see the positive answer. There is, in spite of universal refusal, by the end of the day, there is a remnant that believes. Why? Because in spite of universal corruption and rejection, God intervened in Christ, uh, realizing a salvation that he sends out, they spreads out through the preachers of the gospel, through Christians. And then, when they do, he intervenes by his Holy Spirit, effectually calling those whom he has foreloved to be saved in Christ. That's Paul's reasoning. It's very clear. And it is very precious for us. Now, you know, uh, we're not living in the time of the Reformation when these truths were loved and understood and appreciated as never before in history, since the Apostle time anyway. Uh, we're living in a different time today. And somehow the truth of election is, is hated, is rejected. But... There couldn't be no greater contradiction for a Christian to hate and reject the doctrine of election because the doctrine of a sovereign election is always spoken of in the, in the Bible 
as a, a reason for unending joy and gratitude and worship. Paul speaks here of election to console, <laughs> to comfort those who are seeking for an answer. Why is it that so few we saw the negative answer? Then why is it that any? Well, because of the, the sovereign love and grace of God. So what do you say to that sovereign love and grace? Do you hate it? Do you reject it? Do you contest it? You know, the political ballots sometimes can be contested, but not the electing love of God. Because what Paul is saying here is if there had not been a sovereign election, there wouldn't be a remnant. We would all be consumed, like Lamentation says. But by your mercy, we would all be consumed. And so, Paul's theological anchors here are very solid. But let me be precise. I do not want to be misunderstood. And especially, we need to understand the scriptures. I go back to what I was saying earlier concerning chapter 10 and verse 20 and 21. According to chapter 20, I'm sorry, according to chapter 21, the reason why Israel was never converted as a people is to be attributed to Israel's fault. Because God has kept His arms, His hands stretched out open, saying, come, 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 come. So, when the time of judgment will come, those who have rejected Him will not be able to say, uh, you rejected us. No. I was saying all the time, come, come, come. You rejected me. You despised me. You didn't believe in me. You didn't come to me. But then, in verse 21, in verse 20, when he speaks about salvation, he was found by those who sought him not. Well, how did they do that? How can you find something you don't seek after? Because the thing that you need to find seeks after you. The sheep do not seek after the shepherd. It's the shepherd that seeks after the sheep. And that's how they're found. The whole Bible talks about that. So here's the seminanthesis again. The, the cause of human perdition and condemnation is all to be attributed to men, not to God. Always, chapter 11, look at verse 23. Uh, I'm sorry, verses 20. Speaking about the Jews again. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. You see that? They were not broken off because God found gusto to uh, condemn people to death. Our God is not a God of cruelty. Cruelty is satanic. It does not belong at all to the character of God. Because of unbelief they were broken off. It was their fault. They didn't believe. They didn't seek. 
they did not repent. And that's why. But then if we speak of salvation, it is all attributed to God, as we already seen. And as He does very well in chapter 10, verse 20, and then in chapter 11, verse 2, and then in chapter in verse 4, and then again in chapter 5. And mind you, mind you, that when Paul speaks in verse 7, saying, if by grace then is no longer of works, he's not speaking of justification. Speaking of election. Justification is of grace, no works, no merit. Election is by grace alone. And no work, and no merit. You, you cannot have conditional justification, I mean, unconditional justification and conditional election. <laughs> no, it's all unconditional. It's all of grace. You would do damage to the gospel if you would hold to that doctrine. So, uh, as, we, as we spent these minutes together, what have we done? What have we seen? Um, well, we saw the origin of the remnant. The origin. The, there's always been a remnant because God has made sure there would be one by providing salvation and uh, realizing salvation by His grace in Christ through His Spirit by means of instruments such as we are. All through history has done that and it all comes out of His grace. So, again, we reject what's called double, double predestination. <laughs> we, we reject the, the doctrine that believes that God chooses people to go to hell. No, that's monstrous, that's heresy, that's satanic. <laughs> uh, man is responsible for his perdition, not God. God is not the author of sin, he's not the author of unbelief. But salvation is all of God. And that's why, because election is all of grace, just as justification is all of grace, Christians in the Bible only rejoice about election. They never contest it, but they're very grateful. Very grateful. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for calling my daughter. Thank you for calling my son. Thank you for calling my friend. Thank you for calling many. It is unthinkable in scripture terms to hate or combat or attack or deny the truth of election. Uh, now as we said in the beginning, this is so very important because of these two things as well. This is very evidently something God has done all through history. This is the way he operated. <laughs> so, he, he always made sure there would be an oral witness of him through history. Sometimes it may have been one, <laughs> but he made sure there would always be a voice <laughs> that recognized him and believed in him 
and recognized him. And also let me say this has impact um, on our eschatology. <laughs> What's going to take place in the end of times? Well, the post-millennialists, you know, believe that in the end of times, basically all of humanity will be redeemed. So there won't be a remnant, because everybody will be converted. But that doesn't seem to be the teaching of Scripture, does it? The truth of the remnant will, according to what we see in Scripture, uh, continue to the very end. When Christ will come, He will come to rescue a remnant <laughs> that is still surviving on the earth. That's the picture that we have in Scripture. Will I even find faith when I will return? He asks. <laughs> and there are too many Scriptures that indicate that the truth of the remnant from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible will remain steadily all through history until the end of time when then a large crowd <laughs> made of all the small people that God has saved through history will be gathered and then it will be innumerable innumerable because he's worthy of it now very quickly um, we must go back to Genesis and in just the last few minutes we have. But uh, this evening I would really like to concentrate on the difficulties and temptations of the remnant and the remedies. So I'd really like to try to finish. Um, so the next thing we need to see, again in the few remaining minutes, is what's the purpose of the remnant? Why has God made sure there, were, there was always a remnant all through human history. And uh, very quickly, let us look at it. Well, first of all, in Genesis 1 through four, 3 and 4, you can see how Cain and Abel, they worship God. One gives a true worship, Abel. One gives a false worship, Cain. What does that mean? Well, it means that Adam and Eve had taught their children about God and how they should worship Him. So that clarifies also Genesis 3, verses 15, when God says that He will change the heart of the woman. He will make the woman the, the enemy of the serpent, which implies that He converted the heart of Eve and made Eve His friend. Let's see, reconciliation. And that promise uh, seemed to have come true, already beginning with chapter 4. Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. You see, a reference to God. Apparently, God is not one whom he wants to forget. <laughs> he ties God to the very birth of, his, of her firstborn. So that's an indication that she was already a believer. So Adam and Eve teach their children to worship God. Only one is a true convert, though. The other one is from the evil, and he does not believe. So what we see, what happens then when uh, uh, 
when Cain kills Abel and the and then he marries and he develops his seed, there's really only a remnant that remains. Because if we study the line of Cain uh, in verse 4 through verses 16 through 24, we see that it is a degenerate uh, descendancy. But what happens in verse 25-26? Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God had appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. You see again the reference to God? (laughs) And then see what happens. As for Seth, to him also uh, a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Again, uh, there was already family worship, as we see with Adam and Eve. But we said, in the time of Set, there began like a public worship. That that's really what this this means here, uh, because we know that Adam and Eve were still alive when when this was taking place. So this is not the beginning of God's worship, but it's the beginning of a public worship that happened with Set. And so we see the surviving remnant here that continues to be. And then if we in fact study the line of Set in chapter 5, what do we see? Well, <clears throat> we see of course, verse 3, Adam is apparently a believer. Then look at verse 6, Set is a believer, we know that. And then look at verse 12, Mahalalel. Now, He's a believer, apparently, or at least his name means praise of God. <laughs> praise of God. That's another indication that this, man's, this man, too, was a believer. And then, in verse 24, we find Enoch, who walked with God. He, we know for sure that Enoch was a believer. And then, in 28, Lamech, uh, he was a believer. How do we know? Because of his prophecy. Look at what what we read here. He lived 182 years and begot a son. And he called his name Noah. Now Noah means rest or consolation. Saying this one will comfort us, will console us, will give us rest concerning our work and the toll of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Consider the implications that are found here. What are the implications? Where? Well, first of all, what is spoken here by Lamech is a prophecy. He prophesies about Noah and the role that Noah will play in the God's redempting schemes. So that's important. Lamech was a prophet. Secondly, uh, he speaks of what? This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toll of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. How does Lamech know that long ago God had cursed the ground? Because many generations here have gone by. Ten generations have gone by. How does he know? Well, because there is an oral truth that's being passed on generation to generation. Through what? 
through the remnant, through the remnant. The people that don't believe don't want to remember God, nor His works, nor His ways, nor His message. But the remnant is there to keep the message alive, current, orally transmitting it to those around, especially to believers. Just, <laughs> I would like to, just a uh, verse that suddenly comes to mind is uh, in Second Timothy, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 1. What a beautiful... Uh, the things that you have heard, Timothy, from me among many witnesses, commit these, uh, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. <laughs> Paul, uh, Timothy, the things that I taught you, teach others. Who are faithful, that they may also be able to teach others, and so forth, through gener- in the through the generations. That's exactly what has happened from the very beginning, which helps us to understand the reason why God has has always had a remnant. (laughs) One of the major, if not the major purpose of of the remnant is that the remnant receives the truth of God, believes the truth of God, um, preserves the truth of God and passes it on. It's like a like a, a testimony with the runners. Is it how you call it? Like a, how do you call it, Paul? Uh, testimony. The witness. Yeah, like a witness when you run, you know, races, and you you just pass it on to the others, who then passes on to the others. Okay, so that's that's what what's happening here, and uh, and going back, of course, to Genesis five, and I'm speaking of uh, verse twenty nine. When we see also what we see that the truths that Lamech is preserving are the original truths, the the primeval truths of Scripture, because he knows about the fall of man. If he knows about the ground being cursed, he must know why it was cursed. And that implies that he also knew of a time in which it was not cursed. So he knew of Adam and Eve when they were created originally and how they fell. What happened with sin. And all the consequences. And all the needed rest. (laughs) Liberation. You see all the implication of this? Which, very quickly, I want to give you just a, a, uh, uh, just a reference. This is a collection, it's a two-volume two set collection of the ancient Near East writings. These are writings that date back to the time of Abraham, written by the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians. And, and have you ever heard of the epic of... Gilgamesh. This was written in the time of Abraham, and uh, or you know between Abraham and Moses. But here's what it says: just uh, just a very small portion of it. Tear down this house, build a ship, give us possessions, seek thou life, forswear worldly goods, and keep the soul alive. Aboard the ship. 
Take thou the seed of all living things. The ship that thou shalt build, her dimensions shall be to measure. Equal shall be her widths and her length. And this is our quotations from Genesis, of course. It's, it's an old Mesopotamian account of the flood. Of the flood. You can read pages and pages of it. Why, 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 why is it there? Why is it that these ancient primeval histories have been, pres- have been unearthed and, and written in these old documents? Because they belong to the, our original state of humanity. It's like a heritage of memory. It's like the things that are told from generations to generations. As you tell your son about what your daddy did during the war, that is passed on and passed on. It's kept in memory. And these big universal events from the very origin of humanity have been recorded in many tablets of, of ancient peoples. But, but then if you read it, you will find that it's been corrupted, interpreted through the eyes of people that are polytheistic, idolaters. So they attribute to the idols what they should attribute to God. And they distort the whole picture. (coughs) There are accounts of creation that are so distorted. Which means that, what an illustration of the need of the remnant. (laughs) If a remnant had not been preserved, the truth of God, even this primal, original truths of the history of humanity, would have been corrupted and lost sight of. But the remnant was kept alive so that a correct memory given then to us through the scripture would have been preserved and passed on to generations. Imagine the sovereignty of God doing all this through history. What an amazing work. What an amazing work. And lastly, uh, look at those words in Genesis 5.29. Uh, this one, Noah, will comfort us concerning our work and the tall of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. He called his name Noah. Oh, it reminds us of the angel's words. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sin. And here... He called his name Noah because he will comfort us concerning the consequences of sin in terms of toil and labor. Now, what does this mean? It means that Noah is a messianic figure in the Bible. He speaks ahead of time of the one who was supposed to come and set us free from the toil of this life, from the wasted labors of this life, from the condemnation of this life. Mind you, these types and anti-types, <laughs> they never fully can explain Christ. Christ only uh, explains Himself and is sufficient in Himself. There, there are always limitations in these types, in these figures. But it is so true we are here, we are seeing here one of the first messianic figures 
Abraham would be in a messianic figure. Isaac, as he was sacrificed, uh, would be a messianic figure. Joseph was a messianic figure. Moses, the liberator from the slavery of Egypt, he was a messianic figure. David, Solomon, uh, Joshua, all of these were. Uh, Noah was one of the first, if not the first, according to some. But perhaps Abel was too. <laughs> uh, so ultimately, this is it. This is the heart of it all. The remnant was always kept alive. A small remnant was ever kept alive. So that will, will the message of salvation, not only God's general truths, as we saw earlier, about creation, about sin, about the flood, but specifically the redemptive message of Christ, the Messiah to come, the promise of salvation will be kept alive, will be kept alive through the remnant, passed on from generation to generation so that people would have an instrument, a message, believing which they could be saved. What a wonderful thing to be part of the remnant. We may, we may feel small. Well, as we saw in Elijah, it is a common sentiment among us. In ourselves, we feel a minority. Our resources are very few. But it is, does give us a lot of comfort <laughs> to see how God has acted through history and to find ourselves, even as today we are, are worthy of it, to be part of the remnant of God. Shall we not be glad? Tomorrow we will no longer be here. We'll be with Him. It'll be quick. But then it will be eternal. Amen.